Hi, and welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into traffic on today's review episode. I can show you the world. Just take a look through my eyes. A couple of caveats about today's episode, actually, though. It's a review of traffic in the loosest sense possible. I'm basically using the film as a springboard to talk about a different thing that kind of occurred to me while I was watching it. Uh, Second, I'm really kind of... um, I know I need to record this episode. Uh, You know, It's not like I'm at the last minute. You know, I'm recording this a day early, but I have been trying to watch The Director and the Jedi for quite some time, uh, and kind of going back and forth in my head as to, like, should I just spring for the money and buy the thing on Amazon to, like, get the documentary and all that, so finally I have it, I am, I am, I'm, like, two minutes into the movie, and, you know, I just finished a previous movie, uh, Kodachrome, which also came out this year, uh, and, uh, so, you know, after Kodachrome, I was like, oh, I gotta record this episode, but I really want to watch The Director and the Jedi, so if, if I'm a little distracted, that's probably why I'm fascinated by, by the behind-the-scenes of, of The Last Jedi, and, and I've heard such great things about it. So that, that is also happening right now. Uh, so just a heads-up as far as where my head's at, in a sense. Um, but traffic. Okay, this is not um, the... the Soderbergh? Soderbergh do traffic? I think. Yes. This is not that traffic. Uh, This is the T-R-A-F-F-I-K traffic uh, featuring the great Paula Patton, he said sarcastically. Uh, It came out like a week ago, a week and a half ago. And general plot um, Paula Patton, Omar Epps go for a nice little vacation out for the weekend out in the mountains. They get accosted by this biker gang. Um, uh, their best friends are involved. There's a sex trafficking ring. Uh, you know, and, and then it kind of goes in that direction. Here's the thing. Uh, so, movie in and of itself, one of the worst movies I've seen this year. But that's not really what I wanted to talk about. There's an element in this movie that really stood out because it's incredibly obvious and really over the top in its presentation, especially in traffic, that applies to most movies, but movies of a particular genre, generally thrillers, noirs, mystery movies, that I think it's kind of a catch-22 for a lot of films, and I wanted to try to explore that as best I can um, in a way that I think makes sense. Uh, so I'm using traffic as the the base for that, as kind of the worst example of this this thing. So in traffic, you've got Paula Patton, main character, Omar Epps, main character's uh, boyfriend, uh, potential fiance, as we learned throughout the film. Missy Pyle plays a deputy uh, of the local police force. Laz Alonzo is the f- best friend of the of Omar Epps, I guess. Um, you've got William Fickner as uh, Paula Patton's boss. Dawn Olivieri, you may know from House of Lies, she plays one of the sex-trafficked women. Uh, And then a couple of other no-name people. 
but essentially you got the biker gang group, you've got the head guy who runs the sex trafficking ring, as far as we know. And then, as well, Laz Alonzo has a uh, girlfriend that comes with them. So, what this movie does, uh, you know, it's a thriller. You go in not really knowing what's going to happen, and supposedly. You, you go in not knowing which characters you can trust. And when a movie is trying to play out a mystery, trying to play out a thriller like this, uh, anytime you're introduced to a new character, you are immediately on the lookout for t signs as to whose side this character is on. So we meet these bike, this biker gang. We meet this this guy who uh, we're not. We he we get an un unsavory opinion of him at first. He runs into Paula Patton in the convenience store they stop at with the biker gang there. All this kind of stuff happens right around this convenience store. Uh, he runs into her. You know he he spills something on her dress. You know she apologizes, offers to pay for her stuff. Uh, but, you know, you get these vibes, like he's not super trustworthy. Then, in the bathroom, she runs into Don Olivieri's character, and Don Olivieri's character is, like, freaking out, like, way out of her mind, uh, says something very cryptic to Paula Patton. We're not sure what her deal is. Uh, she's interacting with this truck driver guy uh, who's really aggressive and forceful. Uh, so he seems like bad news. The biker gang gets up all in Omar Epps' face outside. Uh, clearly, they've got something that's going on with them. Like, they kind of just very hostile. Then, all of a sudden, the deputy shows up, Missy Pyle. She kind of calms the situation down. So, you know, we're introduced to all these characters. Rapid fire. And uh, you kind of are, you know, you're in this mindset where you have to decide, you know, okay, am I, do I trust this guy? Do I not trust this guy? Do I trust her? Do I not trust her? Do I trust him? Do I not trust him? And when you're introducing all these characters, particularly ones like Missy Pyle, uh, who is a very recognizable face, uh, you know, maybe not a household name, but certainly someone, you know, you may remember seeing in Dodgeball, uh, you know, very, and, and other popular movies, you know, she was in Gone Girl, uh, she's in Jumanji, uh, she's in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Anchorman, The Artist, um, 51st Date, she's been in a lot of movies. So you see her here, you recognize, you're like, all right, well, she's going to play a role in this movie. What role is it? As a deputy, she could be a good guy that comes in and, and sort of like levels the playing field in a sense towards the end of the movie. She could be working with the bad guys. You know, you're not sure. And it's the, the onus is on the movie to present things in a way that seem straightforward but are more complicated, right? Because... You don't want things to be intentionally confusing the whole way through because that's not exciting and that's not fun. But you don't want things to be super obvious to the point where you know all the twists that are coming, which in my opinion, traffic completely way too obvious. I think when you're watching the movie, you know 100% whose side any of these people are on, who everybody's working with. It seems very, very straightforward to me. But that's the thing, right? Like, you introduce all these characters, particularly within a short time span, and you've got to expect that they are all involved in the ultimate plot somehow, particularly the recognizable and famous ones. Uh, and the movie does nothing to dissuade you from that idea. So by the end of Traffic, you know, I'm watching it, and I'm like, all right, well, when's so-and-so showing up? I know that they've got to pretend to be good to end up being bad sort of thing. 
And if you're waiting for that, and, you know, ultimately it did happen, but if you're waiting for that and you know what's happening, that's not an effective thriller. You're, you don't have an effective movie. And so that's kind of the idea I want to pin, want to look at, you know. if you cause, Because a movie like this, you have to introduce these characters at some point. You know, if, if you just... If, if it's a Superman movie and Superman doesn't show up until the final act to save everybody, like, that's not enjoyable because... You know, one, unless the movie's named Superman, you're not expecting Superman to be there, and so his appearance just comes out of nowhere and doesn't make any sense. Uh, whereas, you know, when you introduce, like, 50 different characters in the first half hour of the movie, one, you're going to lose track of who's who, uh, but two, then just things just are way too cluttered by the end because now you have to start checking off boxes to make sure you wrap up each of those characters' storylines and plot lines. And that's not fun either now it's just you know going just running down a list and and that's unenjoyable so it's tough i think it seems really tough for a movie to find that happy medium you have to have just enough characters so that you your your audience is capable of tracking them all and their allegiances you also have to have enough characters so that you're able to throw a wrench into what people might ex- be expecting to happen, um, but also being able to present things in a way that, that seem straightforward, that seem obvious, that seem simple, that are not, that aren't obvious, that aren't simple, but that still makes sense at the end of the movie. And this is, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of bad examples of this happening. And, I, you know, I was thinking about this watching the movie in the theater, and my first instinct was, well, what's a movie that does this really well, on the other hand? And, you know, I played around with it. I, I, you know, I was watching this movie, so I was only really half thinking about this, this subject. But the movie that I think, offhand, is the best at doing this is Hitchcock's Psycho. And, you know, spoilers for Hitchcock's Psycho, which is like 50, 60 years old. But, you know, in Hitchcock's Psych- Hitchcock Psycho, you really only end up with like six or seven different characters that you have to keep track of. Um, I-, I don't remember who plays who, but you you end up with a couple and the woman, uh, you know, stealing money. Couple stealing stealing this money. The woman drives away. Uh, you you interact with a state cop, state trooper guy. She ends up at a hotel where you meet uh, hotel manager. You are informed about the hotel manager's wife, who, or not wife, sorry, mother, uh, hotel manager's mother, who we see in a silhouette up in the house, who we later see kill the woman of the couple, all right? Uh, which all happens really quick. We assume that the woman was the main character. She's not. She's dead after like half an hour of the movie, uh, which is a huge subversion of what we've come to know. And even today would be pretty. Is, is would still be a pretty Im, impactful move, move to make during a movie, except now that we have this sort of groundwork for it, so now it feels like you're kind of copying Hitchcock, so I don't know. It's all that kind of thing. So, not the main character. Huge subversion. So, so actually, we end up with uh, the dead woman's sister, who is looking for her sister. She runs into the guy that the woman was with. The two of them go to the, end up at the same hotel. 
follow, uh, they're followed there by a private investigator um, who's also involved. So we end up with six people. All right, We've got the main couple. We've got the woman's sister of the couple. We've got the private investigator, the hotel manager, and his mother. Six characters, which is not a lot, um, but it's but the way that they're presented, the way that they're orchestrated, the way that they're sort of moved around the, the board uh, gives you enough uneasiness. It gives you enough uncertainty about the plot, about, about the finale, about what's going to happen. And with the, the mother being the one that kills the woman early on in the movie, uh, this is the, the mother is easily the character uh, up until the reveal that we really don't know anything about. So we don't know her stakes. We don't know why she's doing um, I guess you can kind of infer that her motivations for killing the woman are like she's very protective of her son. So, you know, she's trying to uh, keep other women away from him. Maybe that kind of thing. We're not sure. So, uh, ultimately, when we get the reveal that Norman and and his mother are the same person, that the silhouette was just a skeleton, you know, that's a huge reveal. Uh, you know, it, you know, we thought there were six characters. There's really only five. Uh, you know that that, you know, switching who the main character is, all of that stuff, is not only executed brilliantly by Hitchcock, but ex- is an example of the best usage of subverting our expectations, as far as who the main character is, as far as when, you know, who, what characters' allegiances are where. And all that other stuff. And it's a blueprint for giving, you know, making a film, making a thriller, making a mystery, a noir film, uh, capable of deceiving its audience in a successful way. Because, you know, we're not looking at a, like, Psycho, for all of its reputation, for all of the accolades it deserves. Uh, it's not a film that is, it's not the most complicated film out there. It's a very straightforward plot. You know, it's just a, a theft um, that that goes awry, kind of. You know, they just kind of run into this hotel guy who who's fucked up. And to that end, you know, that's what makes it so brilliant. You know, it doesn't need to be so complicated because the plot is very straightforward. It's the characters who are complicated. It's the character dynamics and interpersonal relationships that are the most complicated part about that movie. And... That is how it succeeds. And I would say, personally, that many films, a lot of films, are very unsuccessful in this sort of a thing. Right? So they're very, it's very hard, I think, to pull off those sorts of tricks, even if you're not like Shyamalaning the end of your movie. Right? Even if you're not twisting everything that just took place, even if you're just trying to build suspense, if you're just trying to keep your audience engaged in a way that feels natural, in a way that is uh, understandable, like it's not easy to do that. And there's a lot of films that are trying to do that where you know you get this lingering camera shot on this random guy in a crowd and you're like okay well he's involved somehow in this movie what is his role when is he going to come into play later on what is he going to do whose side is he going to be on and you know it's up to the director it's up to the the the, the, the cameraman to keep and all the 
you know, the, the, the two of them working together to make sure that you're not tipped off to every single thing that's going to happen later in the line, but that you have enough built up by, you know, the halfway, by the, the end of the first act that whatever does come next makes sense. You know, horror movies have this, you know, are, are, are on, are need to do this as well. Um, it's a little different for a horror movie than it is for a thriller, but um, it's it's in the same realm. Uh, so I'm kind of like looking down thrillers here. Uh, so some 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 movies take uh, this approach and skew it as far as the format of the structure of the film itself. So looking at a film that takes um, a lot of different vantage points. Um, the film Vantage Point is an example. I think it's a bad example, though. Uh, one of the movies that I particularly really enjoy is Eleven Fourteen, which revolves around a, like a dozen different characters, but they all interact in various different ways and get to Eleven Fourteen at night. And so, you know, we start out with a scene. A guy is on the phone talking to somebody, and he ends up hitting a deer, and... Uh, he, or no, he doesn't, not a deer, he says it's a deer, he ends up hitting a body that's dropped onto his car, and, like, the cop, a cop pulls him over, he has to talk his way out of that one, and doesn't really succeed, and we see him ultimately end up going over to, uh, running through the woods, and, and finding this other woman, and, you know, we're not sure how she plays into this, and then we rewind, we go back, and we start from a different character's perspective, who we don't even know yet, and then we get their story. And as we keep adding additional layers to the story, you know, they interact with other characters. We get to see a little bit more about each motivation and who each person is. And that is a that is one way to approach this sort of um, making all of your characters important, but not tipping off, you know, exactly why they're important or what they're important for just yet. And so I think for me, 1114 is a great example of how that works and, and making it work effectively. You know, these are, for each individual character, you know, the motivations are very straightforward, the, the plots are very simple, but when you combine all their plots together, you get this one largely cohesive, uh, very well-told story that explains itself. And so a lot of these things that happen in individual storylines that we see throughout the film, um, start to, you know, it, it's it's at each layer you add adds a little bit more complexity, and a little bit more complexity, and you're kind of thinking like, oh, so that's why so-and-so was in the back of the, the police car when they stopped this guy instead, you know, like all the, you, you get all these interesting elements that a different format of story, you know, when you're just, if you would have just told that, and I don't know if you could have, could have told that story chronologically across the whole movie, uh, you know, it's the structure that adds the level of, of um, complexity for that. Um, let's see, what else we got here? Um, I got a lot of thrillers here, but there's so many, like, I don't remember well enough to speak on. Something, uh, let's go a little more recent. Uh, so 2016's The Handmaiden, Chanwook Park, Park Chanwook. Uh, that is a movie told in three stages that uh, the first 
I'm trying to remember. The first stage, we have the vant the perspective of one character, and we are presented with it in a way where one character, two different characters, are deceiving two other different characters. Then we get the second part of the movie, where we see it from the per supposedly um, duped characters' perspectives, and it turns out they're not being duped at all. Uh, they're doing one of those characters is actually on the in. They are un you know it's actually two different characters who are deceiving the other characters. And then we get the third section where it's actually not that situation at all. And so we keep adding these different layers. And, and I think that's, and, you know, obviously Psycho isn't exactly in that same vein. You know, I don't, I wouldn't say Psycho continues to add more layers with the structure of the film. But films that do that, I think, use that structural, um, use that, Lay that sort of difficult additional level of difficulty sh of structure to enhance the mystery to enhance the thrill because that allows you that give that that allows you a lot of free reign to with withhold information from your audience that may be straightforward uh, that may be obvious that may be um, incredibly pertinent to what's going on but when you enter that next phase, you know, when you enter part two of The Handmaiden, when you enter the third, fourth, fifth storyline of 1114, you, you get, it makes sense from, as an, from an audience perspective to have not known a lot of this information because you realize, okay, well, I was only seeing these interactions from one side. And so obviously from that point of view, that's how they would have come across. And... I can't be upset by that because it makes sense to me whether or not it, it ultimately ends up being something that uh, works. So, you know, for all ex for every example that I'm going to list that I, I think is, is a good example, there's going to be a multitude of examples that are not. Uh, and may I don't know if I'll get to some, like, more bad ones, but, like, that's, you know, like, along with The Handmaiden, you know, something like Amores Peros, which is multiple stories, like, I like that, and how those intersect. Um, see if I can try and find one that doesn't have multiple stories offhand. Uh, you can even look at, say, a movie like Alien, right? So Alien, not multiple stories, not really additional layers, but in Alien, you're presented with all these different characters, and it's a horror-thriller movie, basically, and you have to... You know, in any horror, and, and this is, so this is the sort of wrinkle that horror movies add. While in thrillers, you don't expect all but one person to die. Uh, you, you just expect one person to kind of succeed, in a sense. Uh, you know, and, and some movies, there are definitely, some thrillers, you definitely end up with one person that lives, but uh, that's not always the case. Whereas in horror movies, it's far more often the case where, you know, one, maybe two people are the ones that survive to make it to the end. So that's its own sort of underlying question, uh, more so. It's not, in thrillers, it's more like, well, who's in cahoots with the bad guy and who is the bad guy sometimes. But in horror movies, it's, well, who's going to survive out of the good guys is more the question you're asking yourself. So in Alien, you know, you enter, you're presented with these, you know, handful of characters and 
based on their interactions as they go through the movie and as the alien begins to stalk them aboard the ship. You know, you have the chest-bursting scene. You know, that takes care of John Hurt. Uh, you go forward and, you know, slowly the number of crew members is whittled down and whittled down. And, and uh, it isn't until, you know, halfway through the movie that we see that Ripley is our main character. And that's when we kind of begin to get the sense that, okay, that's the person that's going to make it to the end. Um, that's who we should have been following this whole time, but we weren't. The movie was not telling us that that was the person for good reason, because then that, you know, if we know who the survivor is from the beginning of the movie, what's the point, right? Like, to go back, to point to another a movie that came out this year, Truth or Dare, uh, like most horror movies, the main character is the one that lives at the end. And how enjoyable is that? You know, if, if, that, if we know that going in, then you have to, the, you the director, have to make the movie that much more exciting in the in the path to get from the start to the finish. Because if I know that the main character is going to survive, no matter what happens, where are the stakes, right? What What is happening on screen that is making me think, okay, well, I know you're going to live, but this is pretty scary kind of thing. Or you have to present this entity, this villain, this creature, whatever it might be, as so diabolical, so scary, so menacing, so terrifying that even though the main even the main character feels like their life is in danger at any point in time, or like I, or maybe to the extent where I can't even think of a way that they could live, that they could survive. And I think a quiet place does this really well because for a quiet place, you given you end up with effectively four characters whose lives are at stake uh, during A Quiet Place once we get to the film proper. And it's up to... What what the film does really well is you don't know who's going to make it, right? Like, for a while, I would say, up until a point, you could cert- certainly justify any combination of those four characters making it to the end and any of them not making it to the end. I think the further the film goes, the less likely it is for certain people to die. But from the beginning, you know, before we really get too far into the film, there's certainly an argument to be made that Emily Blunt might not make it, Krasinski might not make it, Milson Simmons might not make it, Noah Jupe might not make it. So, you know, that was that's effective when when you're, you know, when your group of people who are trying to survive are very closely tied together when none of them are truly the main character, that really helps you in as a viewer to think like, okay, well, I don't really know who's going to make it out of this because any of them could, any of them couldn't. That's kind of a tough, that's a tough line to walk as a horror movie and, and not a lot of them are able to do it. Um, you know, an Going back to sort of the structural argument of this thing, you know, memento. Tell your story backwards. You know, that adds layers of complexity to a, to a story that might not be very complex, but the way that it's told makes it complex. You know, it's, it's that thing. Uh, you can look at something like Jurassic Park, which isn't a horror movie, but it's kind of a thriller. There's a mystery elements to it. And it's another film where you're like, okay... 
as soon as people start to die, you're thinking, well, who's going to make it? And now, Jurassic Park, far different from a horror movie in that a lot of people survived Jurassic Park. So you got to think, well, you know, there's some people who get hurt that you didn't expect to get hurt. There's definitely people um, that die that you don't think are going to die that seem like they shouldn't die, and it's a shame. Uh, but you you end up with this movie, this brilliant movie, that isn't as concerned with, you know, I, I would say for me, Jurassic Park isn't super concerned with trying to deceive you and who's going to survive and who isn't. It's mostly playing up each moment for uh, the maximum effect, the maximum reaction it can get out of the audience. And that's another aspect. So, like, Spielberg, I think, generally tries to take that direction as opposed to anything else. He is looking for his scene to give you the most emotion, the biggest emotional response he can get out of you. You know, I talked to Kyle about the the scene with the T-Rex that, and, you know, he, you know, went through and explained, you know, the logistical, like, blueprints of that scene do not make any sense. But because it is so effective, because it is so impactful and emotionally responsive, as a from from a viewer's point of view, you don't even care about that. You're not thinking about that until the movie's over, if you even think about it then. And, you know, especially if you're like a kid watching that movie, you really don't care. You know, it's a T-Rex, and your main characters are in danger, and this thing is right in front of them. It is like a pane of glass away from devouring everyone involved. So it is not easy. That is that is the, the I think that is likely the toughest route to take, and Spielberg tries, and I think that's why Spielberg's filmography is so wildly um, inconsistent for that exact reason, because it is a very difficult thing to pull off, and as even as one of the, the even one of the best directors of all time, cannot do it effectively every single time. Jurassic Park, he knocks it out of the park, but. You know, you look at something like the BFG, which again isn't really the same movie, or, or Ready Player One. You know, those emotionally impactive moments just do not do not shine through in those movies, and you know that's unfortunate. Um, trying to think here, introducing characters and kind of giving you this sense that uh, they're not. They're involved, but how do you know they're involved the way that they're supposed to be involved and the way you think that they're involved? Um, who else do we got here? I just I don't remember some of these movies well enough to speak on them. You know, you can look at something like Reservoir Dogs. That's another like who done it? Who's the mole out of the group of guys? And you got to figure it out and you got to piece it together yourself. Um, that's again that's not exactly what i'm looking for um cabin in the woods uh sort of plays on both sides of this line so in the opening of cabin in the woods you know we spend a lot of time with um bradley whitford and richard jenkins characters for a while without knowing why um it isn't until a certain point in the movie where we realize exactly what their role is and you know, because the movie is spending any time at all on, at all on them after the first scene we see, that immediately sets off a flag. Like, well, what 
what is their what what are they doing what is the point of them being here and you have to suss that out and try to suss that out before the movie tells you the answer that's kind of the thing right you want to figure it out before the movie tells you that is always what a savvy viewer wants uh, you know, you want to be able to predict the plot twist if there is one. And, you know, you want to be able to say, you know, oh, I figured it out 10 minutes in. Oh, I knew it when I saw the the whiteboard. Oh, I, I as soon as she gave that other character that look, I knew. I knew. I was there. I knew. I was in their head and I figured it out. And, you know, it feels kind of, it's it's this weird, weird dichotomy where, you get to an end of a movie, if you didn't predict the twist or the lack of thereof, if you didn't figure out who done it, on the one hand, you're like, and especially when other people did, it feels kind of wrong, right? It feels like, oh, I didn't, I didn't get it. You're kind of disappointed in yourself. You're like, I missed all the signs. I missed all the clues and the hints. But on the other hand, it's also rewarding because... You went into the finale either assuming the wrong thing or not assuming anything at all, and you got a surprise. You got to experience it far more more straightforward than anybody else did that knew it, that went in like, oh, well, it was definitely the butler. But you went in not knowing who it was, and then the butler reveal was actually a reveal to you, right? You know, if you go into a movie, like... For example, Infinity War. Like, I don't know anything about Infinity War. I haven't seen the trailers or anything. I don't know who lives. I don't know who dies. But if I go in there knowing who dies, it takes some of the impact out of it. If I know that they defeat Thanos at the end, that takes a little bit of the impact out of it. Now, that's something that like you kind of expect, right? But let's say that didn't happen. All of a sudden, totally thrown off and, and shocked by the ending... And now it's more a question of, well, is that, does that work? Is that effective? You know, and I think that was a lot of, a lot of the issue with The Last Jedi. You go into The Last Jedi, a lot of people went in assuming they knew what was going to happen to some degree, right? They knew they were going to get answers. They weren't sure exactly what they were going to be, but they thought they were going to get the right, these answers and these answers. And what they ended up getting was not at all what they expected. And... Not, I'm not saying that everything that they got was a good thing, uh, but it was definitely, for the most part, a shock, which is, I the shock in and of itself, I think, is a good thing. So, you know, it's it's expectations versus execution. You know, it's it's figuring out a way to present a movie so that the so that the viewer can parse through it well enough without completely predicting the final page of the of the film and so many films are bad at this like i i think i i would say you know the overwhelming majority of films are really really bad at this and you know i mostly been talking about films that are good at it just i'm like going from top to bottom down the list of films i've seen but, you know, it, it's it's just as likely that these are films that are really bad at it. Um, to see if I can pick out a handful of those. 
relatively quick. But I mean, like any horror movie that you think isn't very good is is a good example of this not being a good of this being a bad thing, right? Like uh, that's kind of the point is that it's super obvious who lives, who dies, or that it's super obvious who the bad guy is, or it's super obvious, or it's super obvious. Like, that's the key, right? Super obvious is is what ruins a lot of those movies. And that that's kind of unfortunate and a shame a lot of the time. Uh, but, you know, one of the examples, another sort of subversion of this, though, is something like Inside Man, uh, with Clive Owen, Denzel Washington, where which is a fascinating movie where you're presented with all the pieces from the beginning. You know all the people, you know where all their allegiances are from the start of that movie, which would seem like not the right thing to do, yeah? It would seem like, yeah, this doesn't make sense. How Obviously, I know it's at stake here. I know who's where. I know what's going on. And so it is a testament to the craft of that film and the way that it's it plays out over you know it's one and a half two hour runtime that it's not about who's on what side you know it's a heist movie but there's a lot more intrigue involved than just a heist movie and it's also you know looking at it from a sense point of view where you gotta wonder okay well the move as the movie progresses allegiances are starting to sort of weaken and shift and you know, additional plot points are being involved. And you, you, when you get the Jodie Foster side plot as part of the movie and, you know, you have, the, have all that thing going on, you know, none of these characters' motivations are being hidden from us. You know, we know exactly what's going on. We know exactly who's where. But it's the way that the, the characters are played against each other that adds that extra layer of complexity, you know. Like I mentioned before, interpersonal relationships, that is what makes things more interesting that is what makes things uh, more intriguing uh, more exciting to watch as an audience member uh, but that's again like that's not always the case um, you know for example I think the Saw movies uh, with the exception of the first one are terrible at this <laughs> um, either you they telegraph the survivor or the, the twist at the end too much, or they go the opposite way and they don't telegraph it at all. And so you really go in having not only zero clue, but whatever the ant the reveal is, it doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, the last Saw movie was not good and um, also fell under this trap where, you know, you're being presented with a with a game, quote unquote, and the the winner survive, you know, the 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 outcome just makes no sense in the context of the films, right? Like that's the biggest problem there, and and that's kind of true with a lot of the Saw movies, but it's it's, but that that's the thing. Like when you're you're presenting your movie as a game, you're inherently allowing there to be a winner, <clears throat> which you know, is kind of the question in everyone's mind. In the first movie, you really only have two people. So the the stakes are a lot lower in terms of the number, of, you know, the, not stakes are lower, but the, the options, the, the possibilities are smaller and fewer. And 
So you, you can only really comprehend like, well, this happens, this happens, or this happens, right? It's either they both make it, one makes it, or neither makes it. So you can kind of shuffle through those options the whole time. But when you've got seven, eight people running through the same course of games the whole time, you end up with, well, one of them makes it, or two of them makes it, or it could be, but if one of them makes it, it could be any of them, right? And then you also have all these external influences happening, particularly in Jigsaw. You know, well, how are they involved? What, when are they going to be incorporated into the game? How do they factor into it at all? But then we know from past Saw movies, any of the people that die, if we don't actually see them die, could perfectly come back to life. It just there's so much going on, and and Saw movies really don't do a good job of keeping that in suspense. And and they do suspense is not a, a strength of the Saw movies. Um, any other good examples here? Another Saw movie. <sighs> I don't know. It, it just I just think I something I was thinking about. You know when you. When the camera lingers on a character, it instinctively tell, tells you to think about that character and how they play into the story. Are they involved in a way that is going to impact the story positively or negatively? Are they going to be on the good side or the bad side? You know, Missy Pyle's cop character... You know, when she arrives later in the movie, because she 100% has to, because this is a named actor who is very recognizable, and, you know, we see her one scene in the, movie, in the movie, and then we don't see her again for, like, an hour. So, you know, the longer it goes between seeing her, the more important she has to be, and the more her character has to sort of hinge on the plot. So, if she doesn't resurface till the very end, then she either has to come in guns a-blazing and save the day, or she has to be kind of like the mastermind behind the, all the bad guys. And that's the question, right? And if the movie can at least make that question a 50-50, well, that's something. But the closer the scale tips towards one side, the less enjoyable thinking about that becomes if I mean if you're thinking about it at all but I mean if you are you want that to be something that your audience can't figure out uh, you want it to be an option both ways so that when it does happen you can build more suspense but if there's if your audience goes into that moment and sees that character arrive back in the scene back on the scene and they know there's no suspense to build there you can't pretend that she's good and make her bad or pretend that she's bad and make her good if we already know the truth. And that's tough. Like, that that sucks. That's a, that's a lot of pressure to put on a filmmaker uh, to have to have... You have to have Chekhov's guns in your movies, but you can't make them obvious. And, but they have to be there for the people to see them, but... Because if they aren't, then the ending doesn't make any sense. But if they're too obvious, then the ending will be too obvious. You know, it's, it's a, such a thin line you have to walk. And I think that that's really a fascinating 
look at, you know, um, just like, like looking at Ramekin and, you know, Cody was saying how editing the, the scenes where you're just looking at this little bowl on a table and you have to know, well, how many frames do you linger on the bowl when it's not moving? How many until you move it? That kind of thing. Like that's, that's kind of it, right? Like that's exactly the thing. I'm, the point I'm making is that if you linger on it too long, then it loses its impact. But if it moves too soon, then you didn't build up any suspense. And that's that's such a tough decision to make. And I, I think that that's tricky and, and really tricky and tough to to reconcile with and not something you're necessarily thinking about watching the movie in those terms because, you know, it's one thing to just kind of pass over a crowd, but when you linger on anyone in that crowd, all of a sudden... All right, you pulled this guy out. Why did you do that? And if you didn't do it for a reason, then now like that's stuck in my head for the rest of the movie for no reason. So like that's no good either. It's it's such a fine line. I don't really have a great answer or even like a good um sort of uh point I'm getting at just that I think that this is an interesting aspect maybe something I'm going to try to keep in mind more often as I'm watching more films and then maybe I'll bring it up in the more review episodes but there's a lot to handle with those sorts of things and I think if you for if an not not inexperienced but if an, an a lesser uh, skilled filmmaker is approaching those things then you end up with a movie that doesn't succeed on pretty much its entire premise, like Traffic, which is supposed to be suspenseful, supposed to be thrilling, but when it isn't, well, it's because you've telegraphed everything from the beginning. So Traffic. Um, for reference, uh, I gave Traffic a 6, which makes it my fourth worst movie that I've seen this year. Fourth worst. Um, yeah, I, I don't recommend it. It's real bad. Um, yeah, so, wow, this went a lot longer than I expected it to be. So, um, thank you so much for listening to this, today's episode. Uh, I am going to go into a brief Fantasy Movie League thing right at the end here. Uh, so stay tuned for that if you are so inclined. But that is, uh, the episode proper. Thank you for listening. We sink into our seats right as they dimmed out all the lights. Eight weeks into the Fantasy Movie League, and we finally have a huge, huge week uh, with Super Troopers 2 decimating the competition in terms of BP. Uh, we had the same BP all week, or same perfect Cineplex all weekend, so if you played Quiet Place with seven Super Troopers, you did well. And if you didn't, uh, you did not come very close. Um, for reference, we had seven perfect Cineplexes this week. Uh, Raman, Director's Cut, Rybone, Plexi, Perks Plex, and Badass Cineplexes. Uh, the top six all had the perfect Cineplex, as well as uh, YoJRB, who uh, moved up. Actually, no, I don't think he moved up at all. Uh, the gap between... He, he nearly moved up. Nearly. Um, just $2 million off of 
MJ Labo right above him. Uh, so that was a nice week, healthy week. Uh, just like I can only imagine, it really separated you if you hit that week. And uh, if you missed, that is a big miss. Um, five people above 80% of the perfect season right now. With four of them in the 89% range. Uh, no change in the top six because they all had the same lineup. But uh, inching closer to that 90% mark and uh, continuing to separate themselves from the rest of the pack. Badass is just be- just below the 80% range at 79.6. So definitely still in this. Um, I would say that the top six are really the only ones in contention right now. And even one real bad week uh I think Shaman, who's currently 7th, doesn't really... It's going to take at least one bad week for the top 6 to, to for him to get a shot to move up into that realm of, of competition. But, um, you know, there's 5 weeks left, so it's definitely possible. And uh, given how tough it's been in the past to hit Perfect Cineplex, you know, we went 4 weeks without one. Certainly, certainly that door is open. Uh, a lot of BPs to go around. Um, Director's Cut moves in, still in the lead with 22 now. Raman at 20. Rybone at 19. 18 for Plexi. And then Perksplex moves up to 5th place with 14. Badass has 12. Nobody else is in double figures at the moment. Uh, current record is 38 in a single season. So we have 5 weeks left uh, with Director's Cut at 22. So uh, 4 a day. Or 4 a week would put him tied heading into the final week. So certainly uh, a possibility. We will see. Raman, Director's Cut, and Plexi each got their second Perfect Cineplex of the season. Uh, they're the only people with multiple Perfect Cineplexes so far. Perksplex won the week with the closest uh, tiebreaker of those that got a Perfect Cineplex, missing by just under 200, just about 200k. Uh, the actual best tiebreaker prediction was Rosmelon, who was new this season, uh, edging out Perksplex by about $70,000 in their A Quiet Place predictions. Um, Rahman has the best average tiebreaker of the season right now at $1.4 million. Plexi is at $1.9. Then you've got Director's Cut at 5 Rybone and Perksplex both around 7 Everyone else is at $10 million or more. Uh, and if you don't set your tiebreaker, uh, that, I mean, you don't really, it really hurts your <laughs> chances, uh, especially this week. So this is week nine, and this is Infinity War week, and uh, Infinity War month, really, up until Solo, <laughs> I don't know, like Deadpool and Solo will be the only films that really stand a chance at taking out Infinity War, in my opinion. I mean, maybe it just has the a, a huge drop. I don't know. But, um, you know, if Infinity War breaks the record this weekend, does 250 or more, uh, next weekend it'd probably look at 120, maybe. Uh, weekend 3, we're looking at 60, 70 in that realm. So then the fourth week after that, it's going up against Deadpool. So it finally probably loses out to Deadpool in week 12. But then you also have solo in week 13 so yeah there's a lot of money on the table for the last five weeks of the season and that is that is a good thing and a bad thing so uh, obviously Infinity War is split uh, 
and split in a way where you can play two Saturdays of Avengers. People have their bonus bars at like 180k, uh, which means this week could not only be like the highest grossing week of all time, but it's going to dwarf every week that came before it this season except for this past week. So Perfect Simplex was $146 million, so not... I expect this week's Perfect Simplex to be well above that, but not, you know, astronomically so. You can also go back to week three, where the Perfect Simplex was $165 million, uh, which is currently the highest week of the, the season, and that's going to be a close one. I mean, I mean, it's still going to be... I think this will still be the biggest week of the season, but... We'll see. Uh, so pick, pick the right day of Infinity War, but definitely play two days of it, I think. If you're not playing two days of Infinity War, I don't think you're going to make enough money. So yeah, Fantasy Movie League. In a realist, Infinity War is on the horizon. And uh, you got to get it right. Figure out. We'll see when that Thursday number comes in just what's, what's at play. So good luck to everybody. And thank everyone for listening to today's episode. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, um, if you want to share your top movie list, I'm always open to, to seeing, finding more of those and seeing, you know, I think that's like, those are the most interesting like movie recommendations in a sort of roundabout way. Uh, you can send those, you can get in touch with me on email, circleoffilm at gmail.com or on Twitter at circleoffilm. Both are perfectly fine. You can also go to the website circleoffilm.com to check out all the past episodes. A couple of, got some reviews on there, a lot of statistics, data, spreadsheet stuff, information, all that sort of good stuff over on the circleoffilm.com website. And you can also support the show patreon.com/circleoffilm. Check that out. A lot of good options over there. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and as always, have a week. So long, farewell. I know she'll never leave me Even as she fades from view